Hello and welcome to the Virtually Confident Podcast, where you only have to be 80% perfect to join in. Now, I'm, I'm making a series of podcasts with people who can give you confidence tips, tips that will help you look good, feel good, sound good in front of the camera, on a stage, in your office, as you walk down the street, you can strut your stuff. And I am over the moon today to be welcoming you a very special guest, somebody I've known for for a short while, but it turns out our lives have somehow crossed over the last 20 years. We've got similar similar outlooks on life and we've worked for very similar clients as well. He's a former architect and an academic, famous for designing, listen to this, the library for Magnus Magnuson, but now... He's not an architect anymore, he, although he does use a lot of his creative skills. Now he makes the rain. He's going to tell us a bit about that in a moment. And he teaches professionals from all over the world, from global organizations like Deloitte and KPMG and massive law firms like Bird and Bird. And he's the co-founder and the CEO of Kissing with Confidence. And they are now celebrating 20 years in business. So let me welcome... Russell Wardrop. Hello, Russell. Thank you very much for the invite. Thank you very much for the invite. And thank you very much for the Magnus Magnuson mention. That was my most famous <clears throat> building. Yes. Uh, interestingly, Magnus called it his, uh, it, was a, it was a library and repository and he called it his, uh, he called it his suppository. <laughs> a very interesting man, but quite much more profane in real life than he was in the mastermind, uh, the mastermind oh. chair. I bet, I bet. Now, how do you describe yourself normally? You, you have a funny one-liner that you, you share with us. Well, I am a short, broad Glaswegian. This is my posh uh, southern accent for now. And uh, my view is that uh, I am happiest when I have got a flip chart and a pen and three hours uh, to spend because that is better than golf. So a short, broad <laughs> Glaswegian who likes to do three hours on his feet in front of a big audience. Which a flip chart, a stage and a pen. And now you've swapped your stage for a camera or two, but you've still got your flip chart. We just have to imagine that in, in our minds at the moment, Russell. Um, but, but we are very similar in a way because I'm happiest when I'm I've got my pen in my hand. I can be a bit creative putting ideas on a whiteboard. And if you've ever, ever worked with me, you know there's got to be a whiteboard or a flip chart with lots of pages. Yes. Well, the first thing that we did, Esther, uh, when lockdown happened, was I said to my marketing guys, we are the flip chart guys. Uh, give me flip charts. And we have the Kissing with Confidence Wonder Wall. So we still use flip charts. And I use a whiteboard. So I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of saying... Uh, Open University Lecturer 1977 without the sandals. That's what I kind of look like when I'm doing my gig now. And it's all on the it's all on the Zoom now. And what I would say about that is if, uh, in the words of Mick Hugnall, uh, if you don't know Zoom by now, you'll never, never, never know Zoom at all because we all have to know it now. You've got to be good on the old Zoom. Absolutely. Well, now, well, this podcast is all about being confident. It's all about being virtually confident. Are, are you virtually confident now, Russell? How, how confident are you in front of the camera? Well, I think that um, the short answer to that would be yes, I'm confident in front of the camera. And uh, I do think that uh, it's a more intimidating experience being in front of a live audience than being in front of a camera. Uh, you know, having a physical couple of hundred people in front of you with just a flip chart and a pen, I think, is a much more intimidating experience than shouting into the void. Albeit that in the Zoom, you can, you can see a lot of faces sometimes. So certainly... 
um, when lockdown happened, I actually delivered my first one-day virtual Zoom workshop uh, to a, a client in London on the Friday after Boris shut us all down. So personally speaking, I have always been confident both in the room or for a while I have, but on the Zoom, uh, me and my colleagues kind of took it like ducks to water, but that's partly down to long-standing experience of being people who deliver workshops and keynotes and stuff like that. So yeah, 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 yeah. Pretty pretty confident in it, but uh, we all have our triumphs and disasters and you should be both. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, Russell, you come across as very confident and I know you love speaking in front of an audience. And and as a, as a former BBC producer, I know that you're the kind of guy that I would have produced effortlessly live on air in front of the camera because you, you it, it comes naturally to you but you're helping your clients to, to make the rain to be confident um how are you finding your clients are coping in front of the camera well funny enough just to go back to to i just the bbc uh, producer thing esther i've only been on television twice and this has just come to me no i was, I, I was the you, first... they need to sign you up russell well, the funny thing was the first the first time i was on television was talking about Prime Minister Gordon Brown not wearing a black tie to the to the Charterhouse dinner, yeah, <laughs> and um, he wore his blue suit, and I got onto the news talking about it. But the most important well, time. What did you say on, about it? Well, I basically said he was being disrespectful, and he was being a bit of an idiot to wear his blue suit and his uh, white shirt and red tie because how you appear matters. Because you know, dress for success and all that kind of stuff. And what he was doing, actually, as you'll know yourself. He was insulting his audience because all the business leaders had managed to get themselves into a dinner suit or a, a, an evening dress. So, so in other words, so he was insulting his audience by not knowing who he was speaking to. And he thought he was making a point, but the point he was making was he's been a bit of an idiot. And, and, <laughs> and I, I know that you've got some tips coming up um, in a short while, Russell. You're going to give us your top confidence formula tips. And I know that audiences come in, you know, how to how how to respect your audience is quite a major theme in your formula, as it is in my own formula. I've got my AAA formula. But, um, but Russell, can you give me an example of what your clients have been saying to you in, in, in over the over the, you know since lockdown since covid-19 i mean now we're kind of getting used to being on camera but what have you found well what do people say to you from these uh, global organizations that need to pitch to clients and things yeah, well, I, let me talk about the pitch in, in a little second but the first thing just to to, to your previous point esther when we did our, our first post-lockdown gig with uh, 90 directors of a global business. What was interesting in relation to what you do, that idea that you you got to front it up, you got to have more front than Blackpool and be 80% confident of your AAA. Because if you don't appear like that, it doesn't matter how clever you are. You know, they're not getting it. So what we noticed when we had these 90 directors for about six weeks in kind of May, June, I mean, I used to say to them, imagine your first your, your favourite newsreader. I like to imagine Angela Rippon in 1982 reading the news at 10 past nine at night. <laughs> imagine Hugh Edwards. Imagine Emily Maitlis. Do you look like Emily Maitlis or Hugh Edwards? Or do you look like the local mafia don who's in witness protection? You know, can I see up your nose? You know, do you look as if you're, you're, you, you don't want to be identified? Can I see all three of your chins? Have you got dressed that morning? And I think that interested. The first thing that I noticed way back was that, that how... Can I use the word amateurish? Yeah, how amateurish? Yeah, how amateurish some of these professionals were when it came to this stuff. They would never have done that in a room in the city. They would never have got into the posh, you know, place where you've got your home baked cookies and three different types of coffee coming to you and go in 
you know, like they get dressed in the dark. So I thought that that was the first thing that I think I noticed that the impact that people were making. Yeah. I mean, I found that sometimes the more senior the person, the worse they were on screen. And a lot of my clients, you know, I felt they were in denial about putting the camera on. And some of them actually refused to put the camera on because they thought, why should I? Why should I show my my home setting? You know, why should I put my camera on? However, would you go to a meeting with a plastic bag, with a, well, not plastic, with a, with a paper bag over your head? Would you go to a meeting and not show your face <laughs> or sit behind a screen? We're on the same hymn sheet here. I would say to them quite directly, it's passive aggressive not to have your video on. Ah, passive aggressive. That's interesting. Yes, because I think there's a lot said by not, well, by not putting your video on, you're saying I'm not playing ball i'm here to judge and spy on you rather than take part yes and it's not don't get me wrong it doesn't have to be passive aggressive because some people have got their house doesn't allow it uh, the oh, pipe yeah. doesn't allow it um etc etc not everyone is ideal situations but here's the interesting thing esther and i'm sure this is you'll get this is you this is, you'll teach this too two or three months in of course you get away with that of course you know i've not got this sorted out i've not got that sorted out but most of the people that we deal with yeah, you talk about pitching. We've just done some pitching for some corporate lawyers, right? Uh, and in fact, I've done some pitching for a defence contractor. The last contract that I spoke about, yeah, in relation to this stuff, was seven hundred million pounds. That's what the client was wanting. The one before that, I worked with a client who had gone into a pitch with sixty-nine PowerPoint slides and wondered why they'd lost it on the Zoom. So both of those clients were being complete amateurs. Now, if you're talking about that kind of money on the hook for your pitch or for your presentation or whatever, you better look like Hugh Edwards or Emily Maitlis. <laughs> Can I just put a health warning on that? By the way, you do not have to look like Hugh Edwards or Emily Maitlis. <laughs> but in terms, of their, in terms of their countenance, in terms of their ambience, in terms of their swagger, in terms of their hair, wardrobe, makeup, it's about taking a leaf out of their book um, which is fantastic. I love that, um, Russell. Seven hundred million pounds and sixty-nine PowerPoint charts. So, a quick, a couple of questions there. First of all, when I first did a, a masterclass um, during lockdown, and we talked about camera confidence, I did a poll and I said, "How important was your camera confidence before COVID nineteen?" And people said zero out of ten or one out of ten. Their camera confidence wasn't important. And yet, and then I said, how important is your camera confidence now? And some people put 10 out of 10. If it's, it's 10 out of 10 now. It's important. It is your the skill of the next normal, isn't it? Camera confidence. Well, it's really interesting, camera confidence, because what is amazing about this? Remember Theresa May, when she was doing her Brexit stuff, which seems like an appropriate analogy, she would say, she would say nothing has changed. Yeah, that was one of her mantras. And everybody's sitting there going, but every, no, this was before the Brexit thing. This was when she was prime minister yeah, and campaigning. And, um, but everything had changed. Now, actually, she was right that nothing had changed, but everything had changed. So here's the interesting thing. Before COVID and before Zoom and all the rest of it, Esther, here are the three things that were most important when you were speaking as far as our research was concerned. How you open and how you close and how you make the emotional connection with your stories. Now, let's take camera confidence. The first minute, nail your first story. Look at the camera, have great posture. Make sure we can hear what the hell you are saying. 
Yeah, look as if that you've not got dressed in the dark. Fix your hair, that kind of stuff. Now, I think it's interesting when you worked as a BBC producer, people would have makeup and all that stuff to do. They would go into makeup, I guess. Yeah, I love that. You know, I've just got my first tip of the day from you. My most really, really valuable tip. I love that. What's important, and this is this is now. This was this was BC. I call it before COVID, not before Christ. BC, open, close, and emotional connection in between. Um, it's the same now. Open, close, emotional connection, and yet people argue and push back about how can you do that via a camera? Well, you can, but you have to think about it and be good at it. And one of the main things is hair, wardrobe, makeup. Yes, please. Don't leave them to chance, you know, actually do it. I mean, when you go on TV and I've been on um, Channel 5 News quite a few times um, over the past year, um, you walk in there and they literally look at you and it's not because you look bad. They just say, right, get in there. And they, they, they send you to somebody that, that quickly gets the hair straightener out checks your makeup, men and women, checks that you're not wearing silly colours that are going to fizz on camera, and you can look half-decent really easily. Do you know really what's interesting, easily. Esther, about that? The twice I've been on television, um, they took one look at me and never bothered. They never, I think they just thought... I mean, what they will have done is... Look, look the, time. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, with, um, with Zoom, um, we're not going to go into the shots and all that sort of stuff and being on camera, but there's a few really simple things you can do to look good. Yeah. And you're pretty good. You've got good lighting, I've noticed. And yeah. you know about lining yourself up with your eyes a third of the way down the screen. Yeah. That yeah. is... You, you, so you're already there. But um, I'm really just talking about you, Russell, and your journey, and, and you, you've you've been the co-founder of Kissing with Confidence. I love the name, by the way, the CEO of Kissing with Confidence. 20 years you've been doing that, but before that, you were an architect. So I just wondered, um, you know, this is just a, a, a Russell, a Russell, what is it that you've got and how is it that you left architecture to set up an organisation that helps city people to be more confident and win business? Yeah, well, <laughs> I love being an architect, uh, but then I became an academic uh, from being an architect because I was offered a partnership, but it was with my architectural practice and I didn't fancy it because it's a difficult way to earn a living. So I became an academic teaching students about architecture uh, and design. And then I became, when I was at that university, I became director of a placement centre where I started getting students jobs. Uh, so I spent a number of years getting hundreds of students jobs by te and teaching them employability skills. Funnily enough, teaching them how to dress, teaching them how to buy their first suit, get their hair cut, uh, interview technique. And then when I was uh, 35, I decided to start Kissing with Confidence and it was actually, um, it was redundancy money from my university. that They were looking to get rid of people because they had too many people and I got a year's money to go and we started Kissing with Confidence. But the most important thing about that is not the money. The most important thing about that is my co-founder and managing director, Sharon, because everyone needs a Sharon. And as much as Sharon is the organizer, the managing director, she does everything apart from the delivery stuff. And from the very beginning, that was absolutely crucial because I knew that I was good at the creativity from architecture, transferred itself really well to creating really good programs and we really good the rainmaker program is fantastic and that creativity but it's much more as you'll know yourself esther than about just creativity you've got to harness that creativity and turn it into a business so that's essentially what happened architect academic and um, i met sharon when i was in academia um, and she's now my wife uh, and then kissing with confidence and we started teaching pitching and presentation skills 
in the financial crash of um, well, 12 years ago now, uh, nobody wanted presentation skills. So we started teaching Rainmaker. We started teaching professionals how to sell. And that's pretty much all we do now. We teach professionals how to persuade their clients to give them work through the Rainmaker. So program. that's what I find interesting, Russell. When we first met, we literally just talked and talked and we were actually in, introduced by a, a mutual cl a client of ours because they said you should meet they said to the guy said it was it, i think it was tom he said he's now in denmark he's, like you. he's now in bloody denmark <laughs> he's gone to denmark and then he said to you you must meet this woman she's as crazy yeah. as you and the, the thing that's really interesting and this is and the tip that we can share is that we both have this creative you know, I'm from the creative industry. I'm from BBC. Yeah. From before that, I'm film. You know, producing radio, um, showbiz reporter, being able to rustle up. If you don't mind me saying the word <laughs> rustle, I'm, I'm I'm able to rustle stuff up, and I'm 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 a content creator. Mm. However, I always knew there was something more to. The pro just producing it. There's nothing. It's, it's not just producing. It's a lot of work. Being in a live studio, having to having to work with the likes of Theresa May, who won't budge. She's my perfect planarina type, and having to manhandle Boris Johnson, who's my perfect wing it wonder type. Having to be the person to give the people the the per the talent confidence, but then also creating a business out of those skills. I too. I have a lot of backup with my, you know, the button down backup with the planners, the people organizing my diary, the, all the paperwork and the, and the contracts and stuff like that. Um, but it's a really, really, really good tip from my point of view. And it was so, so refreshing to meet you, Russell, to know that, you know, that's why, that's why I'm saying you only have to be 80% perfect to be part of my gang because what I realize is, I'm, I am creative and I've got all the, the stories to tell and I can, I can come up with ideas and at, the, at the drop of a hat. However, I haven't got every tool in the toolkit in order to run a business. But I love sharing and I love, um, now I love, I'm speaking in front of an audience, I never used to love that. I used to be incredibly terrified of speaking in front of an audience, which is why I wrote the book Goodbye Glossophobia. I'm not quite as confident as you. <laughs> I wasn't quite as confident as you when I first set up my business. But um, but that's a great tip, isn't it? When you work when you work with your clients, do you talk about your USP and having and in the team? How do you complement each other's skills? Well, I think that it's funny when you were talking about stuff about creativity. The other the other key things about creating programs and stuff like that for. Uh, professional services clients is that it is about the creative idea uh, but then having been a lecturer you had to design programs that lasted 12 weeks because a series of lectures and workshops and Sharon the managing director she was in quality assurance latterly very senior so she actually approved these programs so that alchemy of having the creative input what is it that Francis Bacon said ideas upon the surface flow he who looks for perils must die below and I think that that's the challenge for us creatives that the creativity is that that zing, that pizzazz, that 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 sheer excitement and effervescence of coming up with the idea. But then you have to make it real, and you have to be in front of a group of people teaching them a program. And I think that's the thing that is that is the if you like the grunt work that is very very important. It's also creative, Esther. It's, a, it's that's a you know that 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 to create for me to create a, a sensible, coherent program is is a creative is a creative 
endeavour, but eventually you have to put the rubber hits the road where you have to put the pen to the paper and make it make it sensible so you can deliver it to an audience. What's your favourite gig? If you had a choice of of a favourite gig, what's your what's your top favourite one? What's the one you would like to do most all the time? Oh my goodness, my favourite gig is probably when I'm speaking to 700, yes, or more than 700, this is a true, this is one I did this year, um, 700 people tuned in and it was a global bank and it was a, it was a, I think it was a women's network and it was celebrating the end of one of their, their courses and it was a, about a 75 minute session, it was like, an, it was a live event and I got people to, to contribute in the chat room and I had breakout rooms and, and polls. And it was, you know, my favorite gig is speaking to hundreds of people at the same time. And at the same time, we're generating some really good interactive materials like, you know, how, how confident are you feeling now? Or people are we creating word clouds. So, so, you know, what do you think about lockdown? And we created a word cloud. <laughs> I think that's, I think that's an interesting one that you, the, the key thing is, well, this is what's amazed me to a certain extent about the Zoom is that in the real training room, whether it is a dozen people you've got or a hundred, there's a huge amount of interactivity, whether you're throwing stuff out at them, you're getting to chat about stuff. It's amazing how effectively you can do that in the Zoom as well, where you can actually still have them in breakout rooms and going to discuss stuff and use the chat function and use questionnaires. And that's the thing that surprised me most about uh, going on to the virtual environment that you can still get. Now, there are there are deficits to using the, the virtual environment, but there are still things that you can do in the virtual environment that actually engages with audiences through breakout rooms and polls and word clouds and, and, and quizzes and all the rest of it that actually make it very, very similar to being in the room, despite the fact that they are they are actually in the kitchen. Absolutely. And, and now, Russell, what I've noticed, and this is what I'm working with a lot of my clients with now, is now is there's going to be a lot more office-to-office virtual communication, i.e. you're in an office, you could maybe be running an event or a session and there'll be a camera or two and they may be a smart camera. So smart cameras know who's speaking and who's moving and then you're going to have to broadcast you know, to New York from London or Leeds or whatever. Um, and, and this is where the confidence issue can rear its ugly head when you've got to stand not only in front of people, but then you're also doing it Eurovision style, having to... Um, perform to a camera. So my, my question, Russell, to you, my next question is, I think I, there's a long story behind my 80% be 80% perfect issue. <laughs> um, what I'm saying is your work doesn't have to be 80% issue. We're not trying to get you to be sloppy at your job. But in terms of you showing up on camera and speaking your mind and feeling com confident in your own skin, I think if you think to yourself, I only need to be 80% perfect. <laughs> it really does help. What's your view on that? I, I 100%. And I think it's, well, that, that's, that's one of my tips is treat it with a little bit of contempt. Treat it like it doesn't matter. Now that, back to your point, that doesn't mean that you should treat it sloppily. It just means that if you are putting all your eggs in the basket of I've got to be perfect here, first of all, you're not a newsreader. You're not reciting Shakespeare. Yeah, we call it the art of delivery. So delivery is an art and you're never going to get yourself 100% perfect. So absolutely, if you aim for perfection when it comes to this kind of stuff, you're always going to be disappointed and fall short. And nobody expects perfection. I mean, most of the time, one of the, my favourite things to say to people when, they are, when the camera's on them and they're having to do their thing in front of a lot of people, 
just enjoy it because most people are just delighted it's not them having to do it. They're delighted it's you. So don't worry so much about it. So absolutely 80%. I'll, I'll go with 80% and it's the equivalent of my one that says treat it a little bit. Once you've done your prep and you're just about to start, treat it like it doesn't matter. I can tell you when I had 300 people waiting in a room that I was not yet in, and Richard Bevan, the chief executive of the League Managers Association, was about to introduce me, and I was still not in the room. I was stressed to my eyeballs. But as soon as I got in the room and he'd introduced me, I decided, you know something, I'm in the room now, I'm just going to go for it. So that idea that you actually treat it with a little bit of, you know, just brush it off your shoulder problems, because there's always going to be challenges when you do this stuff. You'll never get it perfect every time, and sometimes you will bomb. Because sometimes it just doesn't work and you should forgive yourself for that and learn from it. I've got to ask you this question, Russell. I know we, we speak, we, we regularly speak about the gender question because when you say treat it with a little bit of contempt or treat it like it doesn't matter, I, as a woman, find that incredibly difficult to master. You know, as, as standing up, in whether it's three people or whether it's just your boss or whether it's 100 people, the thought of thinking, oh, you know, doesn't really matter is... is is so alien to me because I think women quite often do find themselves wanting to go the extra mile and be perfect and correct. And we don't, we can't just shake it off sometimes. And this is a general, a, a real kind of generalization. However, because I speak to thousands of women each year, I hear the similar stories um, everywhere I go all over the world. What's your view on that? This Because I think that's a, that's a man thing going, oh yeah, fine it like it doesn't matter is that a man thing well first of all we can put a little bit of science behind that the big five personality test women are women overall are a little bit more risk averse than men so men are a little bit if you get a lot of men in a room yeah there'll be more risk-taking men than risk-taking women so that might have something to do with wanting to be part of the limelight yeah and overall women are a little bit more empathetic than men just a little bit yeah. Now, if you think of those two things combined, men take more risks and women are more empathetic. So they worry more about how they appear, did I say? Then if you think about that in relation to public speaking, yeah, that what you're, what you're, what that resonates. But here's the interesting thing. And I love saying this because I did a lot of work with women's groups when we first started 20 years ago. It was a real thing. And I used to do a lot of them. And they did genuinely ask, well, why come we, why have we got a bloke doing this? And it was because they couldn't get any women to do it at the time. Seriously, they just couldn't get them. But anyway, here's the interesting thing. And this is, you can, you can, you can, you can put this in capital letters as often as you like, Esther. There are a lot of men who think they are really good public speakers. And there are a lot of women who think they are not. And the truth is somewhere in between. So in other words, I think there is that sometimes that overconfidence thing with some men who just are a little bit tin-eared, a little bit <laughs> unself-aware and just go for it anyway. Now, you've got to have a little bit of that to be up there because you're centre stage. So there's there's my thought on that. There are a lot of men that think they are good and a lot of women that think they aren't. And the truth is... Um, the truth, is, the truth is more complicated than that. <laughs> the truth is, it's complicated. Now, and when you're talking about public speaking, I think that also is relevant to the boardroom, the town hall, the meeting. Whereas sometimes, I some sometimes, and what I find with particularly women in leadership roles that are, that are sitting in around the boardroom table, they're looking at these guys and they're, and they're thinking, "How have you got the confidence to sit there?" 
and uh, be quite mediocre, actually. <laughs> and I'm sitting here and I know way more than you. And yet I'm quiet. I haven't quite got the confidence to just give it that swagger. I haven't quite got the confidence to go, well, you know, I think this. <laughs> and that is why, that is why um, I speak about the 80% perfect um, theme. And that's why it's my mission to help women to kind of sl- just think, you know, just take off that 20% of your empathy and your worry and your worry that you're not good enough and your risk of aversion. Just, just shave a tiny bit of it off and go for it and be the person who is standing at the front and putting themselves in the spotlight. And I know more than anyone how scary that feels. Now, I love that. So one of your tips, we, I'm going get, to get you to share two more tips. So tip one, treat it like it doesn't matter. What's your second tip today, Russell? So second tip today is uh, know your audience. If you do not know your audience, the chances are you might have a great presentation. It just won't be a great presentation for them. So you cannot know too much about your audience. The first thing you have to do, no matter what you are speaking about, is know who the hell you are speaking to. Yeah, know everything about them. Yeah, I know why. I know why you're going to be speaking to them. Yeah, um, I call that my audience audit. <laughs> yep, absolutely. Audience, do an audience. No question. No question. <laughs> no question. Do an audience audit. Uh, do an audience uh, audit. You absolutely have to do your audience audit. And the, any, if I think of times that I have failed, Esther. And yeah, go on. <laughs> give us one. Give us one failure because that's the. <laughs> well, I remember speaking once at the Guinness Storehouse in Dublin to an actuarial business, and my colleagues had told me not to do it because I was flying from Edinburgh to get to the Guinness Storehouse really late and just get there for the dinner, and um, I thought they were wanting a fairly serious treatise on pitching but they were really wanting a funny after dinner and it was a terrible venue the sound system was terrible of course i got there late late because i couldn't i couldn't do any sound check they were scattered all over the place they were bored out the heads before i spoke and i bored the arse off of them for 45 minutes because i didn't do my preparation (laughs) esther i did not do my preparation it was good material it was a great 45 minutes but they wanted 15 minutes of funnies and I had missed that. You know what? That's a really good example. And the other thing there, you know, if you if you did, if there is a, such a thing as committing a crime when it comes to speaking in public or on camera, you committed a crime, which was you flew from Edinburgh to, did you say for, to Dublin? Dublin? Yeah, Dublin. You flew from Edinburgh to Dublin to, and, and really you were tired. Yeah. So, you know, you kind of got off the plane. You're not fresh. You're not spending a lot of time on them. You know, it was like they were a bit of an afterthought. You know, they probably felt like that. You talk to my you talk to my managing director about that when given the chance, Sean, and she will rant about it because she told me in no uncertain terms, you should not do this. And I'll be honest with you, that has coloured that client's perception of me for the past 15 years. Wow. A really good takeaway from that. And so knowing your audience is really important and knowing your audience. Wow. We could do a whole podcast on know your audience because I've got hundreds of stories of where, you know, my, my particularly with my clients and they think that the audience, they, they want to, to, to tell the audience what's, what's the roadmap to 2030 or, you know, they want to tell the audience this, tell the audience what the KPIs are. But actually all the audience wants to know is when's lunch? Will I be made redundant? <laughs> you know, and it's a very, very different need. And as a broadcaster, you only ever focus on your audience needs, not what they want, what they need 
Although if it's an after-dinner speech, that's quite a particular need and want. <laughs> well, here's an interesting one for you. You'll, you'll recognise this one yourself. I always used to say to people, again, speaking to lots of professionals about delivering workshops, say at conferences, I would say if you're on just before lunchtime, guys, and you're on, you're supposed to be on between 12.15 and 1 o'clock, when should you finish? Even if you don't start till 10 minutes after, you're, even if your slot has been decimated by 10 minutes, when should you finish? And nobody ever says 5 to 1. But I, I was going to say 5 to 1. <laughs> finish your 5 to 1 because they get to the chicken tikka baked potatoes first. <laughs> also, you can always leave it open that you're there to chat. People can come and chat to you after 5 to 1. It gives them that water cooler moment. <laughs> okay, and then your, your third tip today. So first tip, treat it like it doesn't matter. Well, not that it doesn't matter in itself, but treat it like, hey, you know, this is all right. The second tip is audience. Know your audience. What's their mindset? What do they need? And your third tip today is... Prepare the ass off of it. <laughs> Prepare the ass off. Now, I'll give you a very a quick example of that one. The most important gig I've delivered in 20 years is my wife's 50th birthday party. There were 70 people at that 50th birthday party, and I was doing a 10-minute speech. And I said at one point, Trafalgar Square is 475 miles from my house in Glasgow. And when I said the words, Esther, that's nearly 500 miles. Yeah. With a bit of a free song in the audience. <laughs> they knew what I was going to do to them. <laughs> and I said, that's quite a long way. And I've got a f my relative saying, I'm not going to, I'm not singing it. I'm not bloody well singing it. <laughs> I got 70 people singing the chorus of I would walk 500 miles and I would walk 500 miles. And how I does that go, Russell? You, you've got to sing it for me now. Come on. And I would walk, We'd walk 500, 500 miles. And I would walk 500, 500 more. more. Da, 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 da. Be the man who walks 500 <laughs> miles to fall down at your door. <laughs> the key thing was, though, Esther, you prepare the ass off of that. So, in other words, you know every point in that two minutes. You know when they're going to stand up. You know when you're going to talk the first verse. And you know how they're going to react when you first bring it up. And that's preparation. That does not happen off the cuff. None of that happens off the cuff. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I need to prepare more, I think. I think that's one, because I'm a more of a wing it wonder type rather than a plan arena. Are you a bit of a plan arena then? No, I'm not. I think the interesting thing is, back to your point in creativity, the most important aspect apart from those three is the emotional connection. So you've got to find a way to connect with the audience. But here's the interesting thing. You go find somebody that's the best speaker you know. Find a chairman of an organisation and you think he or she makes it up as you go along. And you notice there are some, there are some, you know, sharpie pen notes in the margin of their minutes. And you look at the notes. The notes will be tell the story about Zurich. You know, remember Jim's blah blah blah. And what they do is they prepare stuff in their head so that when they extemporaneously deliver their stories, first of all, they've delivered them before. But secondly, they've delivered them inside their head. So I don't mean prepare a script like you're reciting Shakespeare. I just mean, or like you're a newsreader, you're not Hugh Edwards, yeah. But actually think creatively about what you want to achieve. So that 500-mile story, Esther, came out of my need to do some burns in my presentation to yeah. my family about my wife. And Robert Burns in his Red Red Rose poem says, I would uh, uh, come again, my dear, though twere 10,000 miles. Now, I stopped after I recited that poem to my, to my family and I said, 10,000 miles? He's a bit keen. Now, that got a laugh because 10,000 miles is ridiculous. And then I said, 
but I might do 500. Now, as soon as you say 500, the audience are thinking, you little bastard, you're not going to get me. <laughs> but, and you can't then just tell me to stand up and sing 500 miles. They wouldn't do it. You've got to then say, okay, well, I spend my life 475 miles away from Sharon Trafalgar Square. That's nearly 500. And I can't tell you, I've still got the notes for that, Esther. I, I, I prepared that. I, I crafted that story over hours. Yeah. Well, I think as with your architect hat on, you, you you need to look at what you've got and you cut your cloth accordingly. You know, you create whatever what you've got in that time. So two minutes, people say to me, two minutes, that's not very long. Wow. As a broadcaster, you can do an entire life story in two minutes. You know, two minutes is a long time. And and actually just for that, for that prep, you're talking about prep. Sometimes you need to prepare more for a shorter speech. <laughs> It takes longer to prepare for a shorter speech than it does for a, for a longer speech. So, Russell, a quick, quick, um, to finish us off, what would you like to leave us with in terms of what's next? What do you see? What do you see for the future? I mean, now we're, we're, post, we're post-COVID. We're not quite going back to work as, as it used to be. We're entering the next normal. So what's next for you and what's next for your clients? Well, um, Without going over the last nine months, uh, April was scary this year because because all the work came out of the diary, and that was really scary because we had no idea what was going to happen. And there's twelve of us, so so this was people's lives that we were talking about. But very quickly, clients started to waken up, and we realised the Zoom was going to work, Esther. And what, quite frankly, we've got now is we're a global business. Uh, and I could give you any number of examples of that, but you'll be aware of this yourself. You can do what you do anywhere in the world now. Now, I give you an example of my last keynote. My last keynote was delivered in Davos, except it wasn't delivered in Davos. It was delivered overlooking the Bowling Green in Brookfield, just next to Glasgow Airport. And they got two deliveries of it because I gave them two for the price of one because I wasn't going anywhere. And it took me three hours, not three days. So there's the first thing that we are global. And the second thing was some coaching I did in Zurich. Um... And I, did, I gave someone four 90-minute sessions rather than two half-day sessions where I've had to have taken four flights. So the big thing for me about what's happening soon is we're going to go back in the room and it's going to be blended learning. But the Zoom or whatever you want to call it, and I think Zoom's the best one, is going to completely transform how we do, how business does business, but how you do learning and development, I think we'll go into a blended model. And it means that the, the oil and gas services client that we've got that is based in Aberdeen, but who has got 60,000 employees across the whole world, we will end up delivering training to oil platforms in um, the sea off of Mexico, I think, next year, because that's where the clients will be. And we'll just deliver it from the house. And that's exactly where it's going to go. We are a truly global business now. And that's really quite exciting. But I do need to get up. I need to get off my seat because my arse is getting big. I need to get off my seat and and, and get moving about again because uh, you don't expend so many calories when you're doing it um, sitting in front of the gym. So that's that's the exciting thing about doing virtual training or Zoom training that uh, the world is your oyster. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I'm finding is that I'm I'm running events now for clients. Before it might have been that we had people tuning in all over the UK. Now we're having people. I mean, already we started doing office to office communication. So you could be. I mean, I remember doing an event for DFID, the Department for International Development, and we had Southern Safari and Africa tuning in, and we had them all sitting there on on their own little webcam, and that was revolutionary a couple of years back. But now. We really can have people from 
all over the world, every corner of the world. The only thing that makes it tricky is the time zone difference. So I'm finding I'm doing morning events so we can have the the, the Far East and then we can have late night events so we can have the US um, joining in. It's, 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 it's phenomenal that you can have all these different people. And if, if you use the technology well, you can have different organizations chatting to their offices in these breakout sessions and getting to know each other as if they're in the same room. I think the interesting thing is my, my daughter works for a tech company and they have been using Teams and the like all the time forever because they've got people in America, people in New Zealand, etc. I'll be honest with you, Esther, I didn't even know Zoom existed before March, which is really appalling in my part, being the chief executive of a business that does this stuff. But we've certainly grasped it with both hands and I do think that in terms of your communication thing you mentioned there, I think that the human interaction must come back. I think that humans need it. But what's genuinely amazed me, properly amazed me, is actually how much emotional connection and engagement and all the rest of it you can get over Zoom teams or whatever it is. We've got a conference running in January where we've already got 130 people coming. Now we're using Remo. Now here's what's going to happen next year. These platforms, this Remo platform is a virtual conference where you can go and sit at conference tables with strangers and you can move in and out of the tables just like you would in a real conference. Now there's no question that real events and real hotels will come back. But what is increasingly happening is people are running conferences and they're actually having virtual keynotes on stages with people sitting around tables of five or six or seven or eight and being able to go up and get a coffee and go and sit at another table. Now that's that's another step on from just sitting doing a a telephone call or a FaceTime. So I think we're gonna get going forward, we're gonna go back into the room, but we're still gonna be in the Zoom room for a while. Me too. And and so my final, let's, let's have a final parting tip to be more confident, to be virtually confident, a parting, a parting gift from you, Russell, to be more virtually confident. My, my tip is get out there and just do it. Just keep going in front of that camera and keep doing it and go to these conferences, these virtual conferences. What's your tip, Russell? GFDI is one of my favourite things. Just effing do it. But that's the same as yours. But here's the other one in relation to your stuff about preparation, Esther. The Gettysburg Address is 300 words long in less than three minutes. It's the most famous piece of oratory a person in the Western world has ever delivered. I think Abraham Lincoln spent quite a bit of time preparing those three minutes. So just get out there and do it, but make sure you prepare it first. Thank you so much. You are a fantastic guest. Kissing with Confidence CEO and co-founder, Russell Wardrop. And if you want to follow this podcast and you want to, um, please do tweet and share. Use the hashtag 80%perfect or hashtag virtually confident and look out for Esther Stanhope on online on on facebook on linkedin and please do link in with me and link in with russell too russell's you've got a linkedin page haven't you yes, 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 yes. russell wardrop kissing with confidence and we'd love to link in with you thank you so much russell give yourself a virtual round of applause thanks Esther. Listen, you have a great day i'm off for a walk in the sunshine <laughs> so am i <laughs> see you Esther. thank you so much thank you 